before we get into our text today, our text of Mark 2, 13 through 3, 6. I want to give a brief intro. It's going to help us define some terms. Because today we're going to be looking at two traps that humans have, fall, have been falling into since the very beginning of time. And these two traps are legalism and antinomianism. Now, we're going to define the terms. The first trap, legalism, the pastor Sinclair Ferguson, he gives us a helpful explanation. He says this, legalism is almost as old as Eden itself. In essence, it's any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace. It then distorts God's graciousness revealed in his law and fails to see law set within its proper context within redemptive history. This is an expression of a gracious father. Now, if we played a word association game and I said, what is the opposite of legalism? Someone might respond antinomianism. And some of you might respond anto what? See, what does that mean? Well, it's the word, it comes from the, from the Greek anti, meaning against, like antichrist, against Christ, and nomos, meaning law. So people are against the law. This might be uh, progressives, as we would call them. People who are, uh, we don't need that rule, we need to toss out the old law, toss out that rule. This could even be the no creed but Christ bunch. Well, we don't need all that stuff, we just have Jesus, and then I can go do this and whatnot as well. People in this group... Uh, they, would, they would think that legalists would naturally be the opposite of this. Someone who's all for the law would be someone who's the opposite of someone who's against the law, right? Well, Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson says, not exactly. He says, antinomianism and legalism are not so much antithetical to each other as they are both antithetical to grace. This is why scripture never prescribes one as the antidote for the other. Rather, grace, God's grace in Jesus Christ, through our union with Christ, is the antidote to both. So I'm going to sum it up. Legalism divorces the person of Jesus Christ from his good law. And antinomianism divorces us from the just and righteous requirements of God's good law. The Scottish minister, Ralph Erskine, he once said that the greatest antinomianism, the greatest antinomian is actually the legalist. And the greatest legalist is actually the greatest antinomian. It goes both ways. They often throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's extremely simplified. We're going to flesh it out a little bit, but that's a foundation for us today. So if grace is the antidote to both the errors, then the question is asked, who is the giver of the antidote? Who administers the cure? Well, the Sunday school answer is correct. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the giver of the cure. So as we continue to look through uh, the book of Mark, we're going to be asking these questions all throughout our series. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I see five points to help us along today. The first is this. Jesus is the great friend of sinners. Secondly, Jesus is the great physician. Thirdly, Jesus is the joyful bridegroom. Fourth, Jesus is the giver of rest. And fifth, Jesus is the Lord of Lords. If you turn with me in the text today, we're going to read. I encourage you to read along. This is Mark two thirteen. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed after him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. There was a British publication, and they once offered a prize for the person who could come up with the best definition of what it means to be a friend. And among the thousands of answers received were the following. A friend is someone who multiplies joys, divides grief, and whose honesty is absolute. A friend is one who understands our silence. A friend is a watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. Well, the winning definition read like this. A friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. And I think that winning definition gives us a lovely, albeit small, picture of what it means to know Jesus Christ as the friend of sinners. You see, Levi was as we know him as Matthew, was a tax collector. He would have realized this friendship firsthand. He experienced this from Jesus firsthand. For Levi, being a tax collector in that society meant the whole world had gone out. His whole world had gone out. This would have been a damning thing for Levi. Since tax collectors worked under Rome, they were seen as co-conspirators with the enemy. The Jewish people rightly saw them as traitors. If, if you weren't paying your taxes, they could go get the thugs. Go get the Roman thugs and, hey, beat this guy up for me. Let's get some tax money out of this guy. This would have been tremendously disgraceful for his family. He would have been banished from the synagogue. He would have been discredited as a witness. 
in the Jewish courts, and Levi gave this all up for money. I want to be a tax collector. I want to have money. And then here comes Jesus with a dramatic invitation to all people, Levi, the tax collector, follow me. And the remarkable thing from the text is he does it. He follows him. He probably knew about Jesus. He probably heard him beforehand. And now Jesus comes to me and says, Levi, follow me. The whole world's gone out. I'm calling you to follow me. The call of Levi here really signifies all of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be friends with Jesus. This is outlaws becoming in-laws, outcasts becoming insiders, enemies becoming friends. Jesus, time and time again, yokes himself to the least of these. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Now I want you to think of yourself the first time you heard Christ call your name. My name's Heath. Heath, follow me. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Lord, if you only knew who you're asking to follow you, then you would, Heath, follow me. Yes, yes, but you see, I have some baggage. There's a graveyard in my closet, Lord. If you just follow me, Heath. How did any of us become a choice of Jesus? What a wonder this simple question is for us today. What a marvel this simple question is for us today. Why us, Lord? Why would you want a sinner like me to be your friend? Levi is excited about this. He's excited about his change of life. And so he throws a party. He invites all his tax collector buddies. He he, he wants them to meet Jesus. Now, I want you to take a moment to imagine what this party looks like from the outside. You have Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, his disciples, tax collectors, and then we're told a whole bunch of sinners. (laughs) And all that entails. A whole bunch of sinners. And they're partying. They're having a feast. Consider the impact this party had on both sides. We have the ultra-religious Pharisees on one side. And then we have the non-religious tax collectors and sinners on the other. And smack dab in the middle of all this is Jesus himself. Verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the Pharisees are thinking, why are you hanging out with those people, Jesus? And the tax collectors and sinners are probably thinking, I thought Jesus was one of those people. (laughs) And Jesus says, neither of you understand who I truly am. I am the great physician. I've come with the cure. And when we study the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace of God, we see it always turns its face towards sinners. When we see something gruesome, we have a tendency to turn our face away, something we don't want to look at. And yet the gospel turns its face towards us to administer the cure. The physician must diagnose the problem. The creator comes to his creation to give us the cure. This is not teledoc. This is the doctor making house calls. The creator of the universe comes to us, Emmanuel. Jesus issues his good news invitation. He sends out his invitation to all weary sinners. But that itself implies that we're dying men and women. Heath, follow me. Why, Lord? Why did you pick me? Because unless you follow me, you're going to die. 
Because unless you come after me, your sin will lead you to death. That should humble us. There should be no puffed up Christians. We should be humbled by that. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor, speaking of the gospel of Jesus, he says this. He says, it calls to those who are needy and thirsty and poor and naked. And all of these are but used as figures of states produced by our sin. The very gifts of the gospel imply sin. Life is for the dead. Sight is for the blind. Liberty is for the captives. Cleansing is for the filthy. Absolution is for the sinful. You see, there's no gospel blessing that is proposed as a reward and no invitation is issued to those who claim the blessings of grace as a matter of right. Men are invited to come and receive them freely according to the grace of God. And what are the commands of the gospel? Repent. But who repents except sinners? You'll remember the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus tells this parable, there's a great king and he's sending out invitations for this wedding feast and everyone who's supposed to come has other plans. I'm sorry, I can't come to the thing. I have a new field. Oh, you see, I just got married myself. I can't come to the feast. And so he says, go to the highways and the hills. I want everybody to come in. I want the people who weren't supposed to be here to be the ones who are here. Compel them to come to my feast. And this is why when the gospel describes itself, it describes itself as a feast for the hungry. It's a feast for the blind, the crippled, the lame. If it describes itself as a fountain, it's a fountain for those who need cleansing, who are thirsty. If it describes itself as a fountain, it's for the filthy, for the dirty. Everywhere in all that the gospel says, it proves itself to be good news. Good news. And I thank the Lord that I don't get to decide who's on the guest list for that good news invitation. It's at this point we must ask ourselves, what other God, what other religion finds its greatest trophies amongst the most sinful individuals? (laughs) Jesus enlists his best people, not from the guilty, but oftentimes from the most guilty. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. <laughs> and that's good news. The Pharisees use this as an accusation. They, they take this accusation and they throw it at Jesus. And, and he takes it instead as a badge of honor. Oh, this man receives sinners. And Jesus says, not only do I receive them, I call them friends, and I pay the doctor's fee. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark is going to set up this further contrast now. So we go from a feast of Levi to the fasting of the Pharisees. This is verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You see, the Pharisees were first upset about Jesus feasting with sinners, and now he's upset that his disciples are not fasting. The legalism of the Pharisees had them trying to obey over 600 laws, 600 commandments in order to earn God's favor. 
Now, just to be clear, God is not against fasting. Okay? God is for fasting. But fasting has its time and its place within the Christian life. These 600 commandments, the fasting, the outward rituals, the garb, everything that the Pharisees were doing was aimed at hedging themselves in and protecting themselves from becoming unclean by outside sources, by something outside. But in doing so, they actually ended up fencing out God himself. They became whitewashed tombs, as Jesus calls them. They were beautiful on the outside and corrupted on the inside. You see, the problem was from within. They kept looking outwardly, and the problem was their own hearts. This is partly why when Jesus shows up, you know, the second person of the Trinity, he shows up and the groom comes and the Jewish leaders don't even recognize him. They say, this is an uninvited guest to our wedding. How dare he show up? You see, Jesus, we have Moses, we have Abraham, we have the prophets. What else do we need? And Jesus says, me, me, you need me. And if you actually knew Moses and Abraham and the prophets, then you'd realize they were pointing to me the whole time. This just goes to show how spiritually blind, ultra-religious people can be. You see, both legalists and antinomians, we get this wrong because they both see the law as the main problem. Whereas Paul says, no, no, no. Sin is the root problem, not the law. Sin is in your hearts. You are the problem. Your heart's the problem. And the cure for indwelling sin is not more law. And it's also not the overthrow of God's law. The cure for indwelling sin is the lawgiver. And the law keeper is Jesus Christ and union with him alone. Sinclair Ferguson, again, he writes this. He says, we've been married to the law. A woman is free to marry again when her husband dies. But Paul is careful to say not that the law has died so that we can now marry Christ. Rather, it is the believer who was married to the law who has died in Christ. But also being raised now with Christ She is legally free to marry Jesus as the husband with whom fruit for God will be brought to birth. You see, the point then of this second marriage is in Paul's language that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, unless we first understand the righteousness of God as only being in Christ then we're going to keep trying to attain our own righteousness. Do you understand what I just said? As until we realize that all the righteousness we need is in Jesus Christ alone, then both the legalist and the antinomian are going to be praying and hoping that God grades on a curve. One side says, Lord, I hope my good work will be enough. And the other side says, surely God will just see that I'm a good person. And that will be enough. But the Bible says our good will never be good enough. You see, Jesus saw the best in me, and then he died to forgive me of even that. So Jesus says the bridegroom has come. The bridegroom has come to redeem his bride, to save his bride. And now is the time for feasting. There will be a time for fasting. There will be a time for sackcloth and ashes. 
But now we feast. To emphasize what he's getting at, Jesus brings up this imagery. He's talking about unshrunk cloth and, and, and older cloth. You don't put the two together. And new wine and old wineskins. You don't mix them because they'll burst. And we could talk a lot about this. We could, there's a lot we could say here, but I'm going to summarize it here. It's simplify it for you. What Jesus is saying is we need new hearts of flesh because hearts of stone will burst. They cannot hold what God's bringing. They cannot hold the good wine. The old heart cannot hold the wine of the gospel of grace. And so Jesus says, instead of 600 commandments that are so concerned with keeping everyone out, here's two. Love God, love others. And that sums up everything else. Love God, love others. The last two scenes here we see both deal with the Sabbath. And the first has the disciples doing what the Pharisees view as work on the Sabbath, right? They're just plucking grains and eating grain. They're just hungry. That's a big no-no for them. And then we have the second one where we have Jesus doing something they view as work as well. Both of these are acts of mercy. Both of these are acts of mercy. Jesus presents himself here not as a Sabbath breaker, which is what they call him. Instead, he is the divine rest giver. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, many of you will know this verse. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is the divine rest giver. Well, the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, get a hold of your people. Don't you see what they're doing? What are they doing? Why on earth are they working? They know better. You know better. And he says, don't you remember that story about David and the bread of the presence? And that wasn't lawful for him to do, but he was starving. And the priest was there and it was okay. Then he closes with a bang. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what he's saying here is that in an exercise of his divine authority, all throughout Mark up to this point, we've been seeing Jesus' divine authority. And in his divine authority as the Lord of the Sabbath, John Calvin puts it, he can relax the Sabbath because he's the one who invented it in the first place. Now take notice, I did not say break the Sabbath. I said relax it. We are still to honor the Sabbath day. We're to keep it holy. The law of God stands. But what the Pharisees were doing, they were turning the Sabbath day into a day of destruction for mankind. Rather than a day of edification and of rest and of benefit. Now this is the part where we have to say ouch a little bit. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, in 2022, we've swung pretty hard the other way, towards the antinomian side of the Sabbath at times. Rather than it being a day of rest and worship, many of us have turned it into an extra day of play, an extra day of work, and often a day of worship of ourselves. I once had a woman in, my, in another church, not this church, another church, she came to me and said, uh, we're not going to be in youth group. My child will not be in youth group for the next three months. And I'll be unable to volunteer in nursery for the next three months. And I said, why? What's going on? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, we just have travel soccer. <laughs> we just have travel soccer. And the daughter came back a couple years later, and she broke her leg. And she no longer is even able to play soccer. Now, I say this not to uh, guilt anyone 
or even to, to make it bad on that poor girl, right? I say it to challenge and encourage all of us. Because what God is doing on the Sabbath is he's literally inviting all of you into his rest. God neither slumbers nor sleeps, yet on the seventh day he says, let's rest, rest. Come into my temple and rest. And when we neglect the Sabbath, as Paul says, as some are in the habit of doing, it's really our way of saying, you know, God, I'm still building. I'm still building. I'm still working, Jesus. Don't you know everybody's working for the weekend? I'm still creating my own temple. I'm still creating, and my temple, my place of worship, is actually better than yours. You see, it's a good thing we're not Lord of the Sabbath because many of us would have simply done away with it by now. Seventh, I don't need that whole rest thing. I got to work on that day. The Bible says, six days you shall labor, on the seventh day you shall rest. Uh, just one more thing. Many of you know the film Chariots of Fire, okay? It's a story of the Olympian runner, Eric Liddell. He's a Christian. He refused to run on the Sabbath. And then in contrast to him, we have Harold Abrahams. He's another runner intent on winning a gold medal as well. But listen to what they say. This is the important part. Abrahams was asked uh, about the, the race, and he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. You see, this is the voice of the legalist. I have 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. And then Liddell, on the other hand, speaks to his sister and he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, that's the voice of grace. So if you heard me up here saying, hey, don't you dare take a jog on Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Sabbath is a day of rest from the work that exists beneath our day-to-day labor. This is a rest from self-justification. It's a rest from trying to earn God's love and approval. It's a rest that takes place for those who hear Jesus from the cross say, it is finished. And because it is finished, I can now rest. Because my Father controls the earth. Because it is finished. Because there's nothing I can contribute now That he needs. You don't need to justify your existence. Your shackles are undone. And so God says, run. Now be free. Run. Feel God's pleasure. Let me encourage you then to see today as a gift. It's a gift. Church is a gift. These brothers and sisters around you, they are gifts to you. You've come into God's presence. He's agreed to meet us here. He is with us. Jesus is the worship leader. You're here today with the Lord. This is a gift. Rest. Feel his pleasure. He loves you. Read Hebrews 4 as a follow-up today. Finally, we see Jesus as Lord of lords, the one who can heal the sick. He can forgive sins. He can ultimately give us true Sabbath rest. Jesus enters the synagogue In Mark 3, the enemies are there. They're poised. The Bible says they're watching. They're waiting for him to screw up. Jesus knows this, and he pulls a Uno reverse card on them. He's going to flip the table on them. Verse 4, and he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now this is a simple uh, question. Is it better on the Sabbath to save life or to do harm? What's the answer? (laughs) Save life. There is only one answer. But because of their, their foolish pride, they are silent. Nobody dare speak. Nobody dare give Jesus the satisfaction of knowing that he duped us. Nobody say a thing. And it tells us that Jesus looks at them with anger and sadness. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, he did not defy them, but he did make them feel their insignificance as he stood looking round upon them all. Can you conceive the power of that look? The look of a man who is much given to anger has little force in it. It is the blaze of a wisp of straw, fierce and futile. In many cases, we almost smile at the impotent rage which looks out from angry eyes. But a gentle spirit, like the Savior's, commands reverence if once moved to indignation. His meek and lowly heart could only have been stirred with anger by some overwhelming cause. We are sure he did well to be angry. Thomas Manton, another pastor, he put it this way. He says he was softened because of their hardness. His was not the pitiless wrath of, flame of wrath which burns in a dry eye. He had tears as well as anger. You see, Jesus does not speak to these foolish men because they're not worthy of a single word. But that stare... That silent stare from Christ of anger and sadness. Let us pray that we never see it. Revelation 6 tells us that the kings and the nobles, the rich and powerful of this world, they hide in caves to avoid the gaze of Christ. Revelation 6.16, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And if we want to avoid the folly of these men, if we want to avoid that wrathful gaze of Christ, then we must approach the text today and we have to ask ourselves some very difficult examining questions. Lord, is there anything of this hardness of heart within me? Is there any of this legalistic, self-righteous pride in my heart? He says, cast your deadly doing down. Cast your deadly doing down at the feet of Christ. Is there any of this antinomian flippancy in us? Teach us to love your ways. Jesus, teach us obedience. What about the criticisms lobbed at Jesus in the text? Have you ever been aimed at? Has this ever been aimed at you? Have we ever been accused of carelessness because we are God's friend to sinners? Or have we hedged ourselves in so much we would never be caught dead with those people? You see, we're very good. We're very good at building our churches. We're very good at setting up our standards. We make our little arrangements. And then we stand behind our walls and we say, all right, you dirty sinners, time for you to come to us. And if you'll just come to us, then we'll give you the cure. 
But you see from the text, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He dines with the lowly. He's the great physician. He touches lepers. He's the bridegroom who seeks his bride. He's the giver of rest who yokes himself to the weary and the Lord of lords who silences the wicked with a stare. What about our lack of seriousness with regard to the things of God? Are we ever accused of being too joyful? Or what about our lack of joy towards the things of God? Are we ever accused of being too serious and too stuffy? Are we secularizing the sacred or do we sanctify the secular? You see, a real relationship with Jesus Christ must bring us into partnership with him in both expression and experience. So that wherever he goes, I go. So as he loves, we love. As he suffers, we suffer. The things he hates, we hate. And when he smiles, we smile. You may remember the story of the older, hardworking brother. Pitiful, that foolish, young, lawless brother. He was just a nightmare to grow up with. He always seemed to do whatever he wanted. He was carefree. He never cared about the father. Now, one day, he went to the father and he said, Hey, Dad, drop dead. That was the best day of the older brother's life. He loved it. Bye-bye. Bye, younger brother. See you later. Adios. Finally, the older brother thought, finally that good-for-nothing is gone. Wait till Dad realizes who stuck around. The older brother worked He worked, he worked, he sweated, he worked. He worked out in the fields day and night. He worked so hard, he skipped meals. He skipped going out with friends. He barely even saw his dad. He wanted his dad to miss him so much. I'm out here in your fields. Did the dad notice? (laughs) Not at all. The dad never even noticed. In fact, all the father did every single day was go out to those fields and stare off in the distance. How can he not notice all this hard work I've been doing? Doesn't he know this entire farm would fall apart without me? He needs me. One morning, he was working in the fields. He heard a commotion. He looked around, and that old man was running. What does that old man think? What is he doing now? Why on earth is he running? Would you believe it? It's the younger brother. He came back. Oh, this, is, this could be better than when he left. Because now the dad's going to get him. He's going to lay into him. I cannot wait to watch him get what's coming to him. But the older brother saw not anger in his father's face, but tears. And the embrace between him and the younger son, well, that was too much. How dare he accept him back? And now a feast? The older brother stomped over to his father. Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And the father replied, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the cure is grace. The antidote is grace. And Christ administers it to the legalistic brothers and the antinomian younger brothers. And when he sees us, realize it. 
when we realize that all of it is a gift, all of it is of grace, he runs. He runs to meet us. The time for feasting is now. The time for celebrating the lost brother is now. Grace changes our yoke of slavery into a yoke of sonship. And we move from guilt to grace to gratitude. I'm going to close with Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, if Jesus is in the synagogue, let us ask him to heal us and to do it in his own way. Let us become his disciples and follow him wherever he goes. Yield ourselves unto God. Be melted as wax to the seal. Be as the water of the lake, which is moved with every breath of the wind. All he wills is our salvation. Lord Jesus, let your will be done. Let's pray.